At the beginning of this series, we, we introduced this idea of let's make a deal theology. Let's make a deal theology is the false idea that if you do certain things, then God owes you. If you do certain things, then God will give you a comfortable life. If you do certain things, then God will give you these things. And it's let's make a deal theology. It, it, essentially, we view God as uh, an entity we can manipulate, as a genie maybe, that if we just rub the right way, he will give us a comfortable life that we will get the things that we want. And sometimes those things that we want is actually to take away a behavior that we don't like in ourselves. Now, this behavior could be all kinds of different things. It could be that, out, that anger that has started to control you, that you hate yourself for. And every time you yell at your kids, you walk away in shame thinking, why on earth did I do that again? And yet, they annoy you and you yell again and you pray to God God take away my anger I have a friend that would call this pray away theology and I think it's very similar with let's make a deal theology in that you think that if you can just pray enough God will take this away from you in fact my friend that coined that term for the majority of his life he struggled with same-sex attraction And he tried to pray away the gay, he would say. And he didn't want it. He did, he did not want to struggle with same-sex attraction. He hated himself for it. He had all this shame built up in himself for it. And so he thought that he could just pray away the gay, that if he just prayed hard enough, God would take this desire from him. And then one day he realized that he had this one sin, this one desire that he was using God to take away because it made him feel uncomfortable, because he felt like he lived in small town Nebraska. I mean, if there's one place that you don't want to be recognized as gay, it was small town Nebraska. It made his life uncomfortable. He didn't like it. So he just wanted God to take it away. And then he realized that there was a whole plethora of other areas in his life that he didn't want God to touch. And I think we often do that with pray away the sin or let's make a deal theology. We say, we use God and we say, God, I want you to fix this area of my life, but don't touch all this other stuff. So he realized that he had all kinds of pride and ego issues. He had anger issues. He had all kinds of sins beyond his sexual desires that he didn't want God to touch. And he realized that he was just using God so that God would make him become the man that he wanted to be. Not the person that God wanted him to be. And he realized that you can never pray away the gay. You can never actually pray away the sin that you're struggling with. That behavior that you hate about yourself. You can't actually pray it away. In particular, when you're still holding on to every other sin out there. And so he realized that he was giving God little yeses in his life, little convenient 
yeses. And I think a lot of us do that. We give God a yes here and a yes there just because we want to feel better about ourselves. We want to try to change a little bit of ourselves, but we never quite give the big yes. Because we don't give God the yes on issues that make us uncomfortable. We don't give God the yes on issues that we don't maybe want to change. So we give little yeses here and there, and we ask God to take away this sin so we don't have to struggle anymore with this sin, but we still hold on to others, and we never fully submit everything to God. What's amazing about my friend is when he realized you couldn't pray away the gay, but what you do instead is you submit everything, not just certain aspects of your life, but everything to God. And he decided, God, you know, I have this struggle, but I'm going to submit it to you. And because I'm going to submit it to you, I'm not going to act on it anymore. And not only on this, but on my pride, on my anger, on all these other issues that I have, I'm going to submit it to you. And I would say he gave, in that moment, he gave God the big yes. No longer am I going to be in control of my life, Lord. I'm going to give it all to you. And when he did that, things began to change. His heart actually began to change. And change in such a way that he began to see sexual desire so differently than what the world calls us to see it as. And he actually decided that maybe he wasn't being called to be celibate the rest of his life. Maybe he would, God's calling him to be married. And he ended up finding a girl. And what's really amazing about this, I, I didn't plan on going on this kind of sidetrack, but I'm going to, anyways, what's really amazing about this is when he first started dating this girl, he said, and we, him and I share a mentor, and he's told our mentor, I don't even find her attractive. Could you imagine, ladies, <laughs> if a guy came up to you and was like, you know, I would love for you to be my wife. I don't find you the least bit attractive, but I'm going to love you like God loves you. I mean, you would probably be like, uh, weirdo, thank you, but no. But he didn't find her attractive. And, and our mentor said, you know what? That's actually a good thing. Because most of the time in our culture, we base relationships off of attraction level. And so you find someone physically attractive, and that's kind of the only thing you've got going on. And you start dating, and you start building this relationship, and it's all based on this superficial attraction. And he's like, but now you have this awesome opportunity to base your relationship on Christ. And what's amazing is the more you two grow in Christ together, the more you're going to find her attractive. But it's going to be based on a biblical attraction. It's going to be based on something that God has called you to instead of something that's superficial. And what's amazing is it's worked out that way. And he's married now. And they have children and he'll say she's the most beautiful woman in the world because he's gotten to know her and see her through the lens that God sees her through. Now, ladies, how much cooler is that? So I'm not, I'm not trying to convince you to date any guy that comes up and tells you, hey, I don't find you attractive. 
But there is something neat about starting to see someone through the lens of God. I always tell Jen that she's the most beautiful woman, no matter how she changes, because she's the woman that God has called me to. And that's the way marriage should be. We should be pulling back these cultural expectations. I've gone off on a tangent here, so let me get back onto this. It all started because he gave God the big yes. He decided that he was going to submit every aspect of his life to God. No longer would he hold back his anger. No longer would he hold back his pride and say, God, don't speak into this area of my life. But he gave God the big yes. And when we submit everything to God, when we give him the big yes, when we stop giving those little no's and give the big yes, our hearts change. How we interact with everyone, including those who wrong us, changes. And that is what we will talk about today as we continue this series called Following. We decided to call it Following because it is a series following the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is really challenging the legalistic religion of the day. The legal, legalistic religion of the day that said, hey, you can make yourself righteous by giving all these little yeses, by drawing a line and dancing all around and thinking you're more righteous because you never crossed that line. And you can continue following in that religious legalism or you can follow Jesus. And throughout this series, he's been challenging this legalism and he actually closes out, we'll close out in our section today, where he uses a you have heard but I say to you formula to correct some teaching. And so this was a formula that was used by, Pharise or by religious leaders in that day, and it was you have heard, and they would give the wrong teaching, but I say, and then he'd give the right teaching. And that's what Jesus is doing. So we already covered anger, lust, divorce. Today we'll cover oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. Let's start off in chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord, which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this section begins with, and again, you have heard, most theologians think that this, this formula that he has, there's six of these you have heard, but I say, 
Most theologians think the first three are kind of in a group and the second three are in a group. And it mainly hinges on this again. So this again kind of breaks it up into two. So again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So this is not a direct quote from the Old Testament, but it is a kind of a summary of a bunch of Old Testament uh, passages. And so the idea here is that if you swear an oath, you need to fulfill it. So that's the idea that was kind of going on here, right? <laughs> However, the rabbis, that actually, that kind of seems like common sense to us, right? Like most of us would say, yeah, that's the moral thing to do. You make an oath, you fulfill it. But the rabbis had developed an elaborate stratification of oaths. They taught that swearing by God's name was binding, but swearing by heaven and earth were not binding. Swearing towards Jerusalem was binding, but swearing by Jerusalem was not binding. In some cases, they even tried to deceive others by appealing to various, various authorities in their oath, right? So, so they're actually using these oaths to kind of sneak in deception. It reminds me of elementary school when kids would cross their fingers, right? Like, uh, they cross their fingers, they put it behind their back, they swear an oath, and then after you go through with it, they're like, ha ha, I got my fingers crossed. Essentially, you just lied, but you justified your lie by crossing your fingers, making me look like the fool for believing you. And I think we see that still in contracts today. Buyer beware. You should have written, written you should have read the fine print. People are still doing this. Twisting what should be common sense to take advantage of people who are willing to believe them. So in his correction, Jesus takes on this elaborate stratification of oaths by showing that they shouldn't swear by them because they had no control over them. And each of these strata of oaths belongs solely to God. So he goes on in verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So, the, so he takes on this strata of oaths, right? Both heaven and earth were created by God, and we have no control over heaven and earth. So why on earth would you take an oath by them? We can't stop an earthquake. We can't stop a hurricane. We can barely predict the weather. That's just earth. We haven't even touched what we can't control beyond earth. You don't own it. Why would you swear by it? The next was Jerusalem, the city of the great king. This is a reference to Psalm 48, which pictures God as dwelling with Israel as their king. So some Pharisees thought that this would give their oath more meaning. But once again, they don't own Jerusalem. God does. So don't take an oath by what you don't own. And the last example I think is the most profound do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So we can all agree that we don't own heaven or earth. Most of us don't own cities. But we can control our bodies, right? I have ownership over my body, right? 
But Jesus is saying we don't actually have ownership over our bodies. God does. And as much as some of us would like to think we could change our hair color, eye color, height, athletic ability, there's really only so much we can do. In reality, God is sovereign over us. God has ownership. Now, we are called to be good stewards of this body. We are called to steward the body well, to treat it well. But don't confuse our stewardship with our body with ownership over it. God owns it. We are stewards of it. In the end, we belong to him. So we shouldn't take an oath by our head because we are not our own, but belong to God. So then what's the solution? What's, if, if we can't take oaths, what's the solution Jesus gives to us? Let, your, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So God allowed oaths in the Old Testament, but the law was twisted to deceive people. So Jesus is reinforcing the intent of the law. And basically what he's saying is let what you say be true. Be someone of so much character that when you say something, people will believe that will happen. You don't even need an oath. Because people say that person has character, that person has integrity. If they said it, I believe it. Now check it out. Part of being trustworthy is letting what you say be simply no. So part of being trustworthy is telling people no. So often we say yes and we make commitments because we're afraid to let others down. Then, when we realize that we don't actually want that commitment, we weasel out of it. How often have you texted someone to get out of something that you should have never agreed to in the first place? And the second you agreed to it, you began to, to plot your text the second before the commitment was actually supposed to go through. That's not living with integrity. And that's actually the reason why you did it is because you place man's ideas of you over God's ideas of you. So you didn't want to hurt someone. So you said yes when you should have said no. But he's saying, stop that. Be a person of integrity. And part of being a person of integrity is when you can't make a commitment, just simply say no. I can't do it. And you know what? Let's start giving people more freedom to do that too. Sometimes people do that and we've developed a culture where we do this game because we haven't given people freedom to say no. It's okay to say no. It's okay to say, you know what? My life is really full right now. I'm not going to be able to make it. That's totally fine. That's what being people of grace means. So we need to be people that can say no and people that let people say no. And we can be people with integrity. When you make a commitment, keep it. If you say you're going to make a commitment, keep it. And then he transitions to the next one. You have heard it said that it was, or sorry, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this is actually a, a, a quote from the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 
24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. And at first glance, this often seems barbaric. We like to think we have better ways. You've heard the saying, an eye for an eye makes the world go blind. But it's important to note that this was law, meaning it had to go through a judicial process. Before this, people could take justice into their own hand. We might call it street justice, right? And street justice usually went like this. You slap me, I hit you. You hit me, I clobber you. You clobber me, I kill you. See how that escalated? And street justice isn't actually justice. It's just plain vengeance. And vengeance is always one upping. So the idea in this passage is when you are wronged, take it to court. Don't take it into your own hands. Take it to court. And the court needs to be fair, not overly harsh. Today, this, uh, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is known as lex talionis. It's the law of retribution. And the idea is simply that the punishment needs to fit the crime. Before this law came around, punishments were often overly harsh. It wasn't an eye for an eye, it was a head for an eye. It was an entire life because you wronged me. And so this is simply saying the punishment needs to fit the crime. But one of the problems of the culture was that they began to apply this law unjustly. Humans have a way of twisting all good laws to fit our purposes, and this law was no different. So an eye for an eye meant you better get revenge. Even if the court couldn't, you had a right to revenge. Instead of making it the punishment should fit the crime, it became as if Revenge was always justified, and as if revenge was your right. And it didn't need to be proved in a court of law. You simply could go eye for an eye. So what does Jesus have to say about this misinterpretation? Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the evil, the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. In this section and in the next, I think it's important, before we even get into it, it's important to note that Jesus is addressing our interpersonal relationships. He is not creating foreign policy. He's not creating policy that our government should take on. It is interpersonal. He is addressing a multitude that does not have a right to elect leaders. They don't have a voice in the government. So all this to say he's not writing a thesis on how the judicial system should operate or how Israel should conduct its foreign affairs. He's addressing an audience that is living with an occupation, with an with a occupier. An audience that has no voice, has no interaction with the government. And so he's addressing this multitude and he's saying work through the system but also do not resist. The Greek word for, re, for uh, resist is antisthemai, and it can be translated as resist, oppose, or be hostile to, towards. 
I don't think Jesus is arguing for pacifism here. This is one of those verses that people can bring up and, and think that all Christians are supposed to be pacifists. I don't think that's what Jesus is, is preaching here. Paul resisted Peter in Galatians 2. Peter resisted a wicked government in Acts 5. So resisting can actually be biblical. The difference is, are you resisting because God has called you to resist? Or are you resisting because you want to protect your own ego? Because you want to enact your own revenge? Are you resisting because you don't trust God? Or are you resisting because you actually trust God? So the point of this resist is do not stoop to their level, but stand firm in what God has called you to. Stand firm in the assignment God has for your life. So then Jesus gives a few examples, right? The first one is, is the famous one. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Notice he doesn't say, if anyone stabs you in the right eye, then give them your jugular. Or if anyone has beaten you down, just let them keep kicking you while you're on the ground. No, he says, if anyone slaps your right cheek. Such a slap was more of an insult than an injury. So the way this would have planned out is if it's a right, if it's a right cheek, it would have been a right slap. So it would have been a backhanded slap against your right cheek. And this was a, a way that an owner would treat a slave. Essentially, this was someone saying that I have ownership over you. There's a social stratification here, and I'm top tier, you're bottom tier. That's what this slap meant. It was more of an insult than an injury. God, Jesus isn't saying that you should just be a doormat and just let people beat you up. The point is that disciples of Christ, people who are following Christ, should accept insult without retaliation. That we should be unoffendable. So often Christians are so quick to take up offense. And we become mad about everything in the world. And what Jesus is saying here is, stop doing that. Stop being offendable. Stop, stop being mad about every insult that comes your way. So when people insult, stop retaliating. In Jesus' honor and shame culture, such a sacrifice was far greater than it is for us today in the West. We don't live in an honor and shame culture. We don't know what an insult the back of the hand would have been to our right cheek. But we can still model what Jesus is teaching here. The next example in verse 40. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In those days, the typical outfit was an undergarment, a tunic, kind of like a shirt, and an outer garment, which was a cloak that would also double as a blanket at night. Under Mosaic law, a person's outer cloak was something he or she had almost an inalienable right to. You weren't allowed to actually sue for the outer garment. 
Because if you sued for the outer garment, then this person no longer had a blanket and most likely could freeze at night. So this, I think it, this example is a, an example of hyperbole. Jesus is not intending his disciples to walk around naked, but to be generous. Even toward enemies, even if it meant parting with essential possessions. And as you're generous towards your enemy, your character and their character will be revealed. You don't always have to fight back, but by being generous and kind, you actually reveal their character. The next few examples, 41 and 42, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So anytime a Roman soldier, at any time a Roman soldier could force an Israelite to carry his load for up to one mile. So you're walking down the street, you're, you're a Hebrew, you're living with an occupation, you're walking down the street to go visit your grandma, and a Roman soldier comes and says, hey you, carry my load in the opposite direction. You gotta go one mile in the opposite direction. And Jesus is saying, go for two. You can imagine how much the Israelites would hate this and how hated the Romans were. So this would have been almost impossible for the audience to hear. The multitude who's sitting there listening to Jesus explain this would have been incredibly upset about this. But I think it's also so important for us to hear. All of these examples, and in particular this one, all of these examples are a way that we can humanize our enemy. Two weeks ago, we talked about anger and name-calling and how that is a way to dehumanize, to make people we hate seem like less than human in our eyes. Throughout human history, atrocities have been committed through this process of dehumanizing. So here, Jesus is turning it around. Instead of dehumanizing the Romans and the oppressors of the day, he instructed them to humanize them. To see them as humans. To see them as other people who bear the image of God. Not as less than. Take any war out of history. And read how one side viewed the other side. And it will almost always be less than human. The conflict that started, the war that started yesterday in Israel. If you go and interview a Palestinian that is for the war, they will tell you the Jews are less than human. And that's how conflicts begin to happen. And that's how atrocities happen. Because when someone is less than human, you can do whatever you want to them. You can kill them. You can parade their naked bodies around town. But when you humanize them, there's something more going on. And Jesus is saying we cannot conquer evil with more evil. I don't think he's arguing that the Roman oppression was a good thing. But he's also saying you can't conquer Roman oppression by more evil. 
the Sakari who would hide their daggers in their cloaks and go sneak up behind a Roman soldier and slit their throats and then disappear back into the crowds. That's not going to win the Romans. That's not going to overcome the evil of the Romans. Quit going that route. The only way to conquer evil is with good. And the only way we can actually live that out is with a heart that has been changed by God. Now, I don't think Jesus is advocating turning oneself into a doormat. He's stressing meeting hatred with positive love rather than hatred. Though Jesus allowed his enemies to lead him as a lamb to the slaughter, he didn't cave in to every hostile attack from the scribes and Pharisees. And likewise, Paul claimed his Roman citizenship rather than suffering prolonged attack by the Jews. We can stand up for our rights. But when we are being taken advantage of, we should always respond in love. And Jesus is going to give us one more point to ponder, and it's going to be on a similar vein. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So here, uh, the love your neighbor is found in Leviticus 19.18, but the hate your enemy segment was added by the Pharisees. Now, we're not entirely sure how the religious leaders of the day ended up coming to this conclusion, uh, but most theologians think that how the thought process was, we're commanded to love our neighbors, the opposite of our neighbor is our enemy, and the opposite of love is hate, therefore, we should also hate our enemies. So love your neighbors, hate your enemies. And I think, once again, we see this justification of dehumanizing a group of people. Because they're our enemy, we should dehumanize them. And then we can get away with whatever we want. Now, this was clearly a misreading of Old Testament law. Actually, in the Old Testament law, there were very clear rules of how if you saw your enemy's uh, livestock, you were actually supposed to care for your enemy's livestock until you could return your enemy's livestock safely. Now think about that in warfare. Like in warfare, what do you do? You want to take that livestock on for yourself, right? You're busy burning fields of wheat so that you can starve people out. That's warfare. But in the Old Testament law, it was actually like, you see your enemy's stuff, take good care of it until you could return it back. So it was actually a misreading of the Old Testament law, and it was a twisting of the Old Testament law. And I think we're so good at twisting laws. So then Jesus corrects this teaching, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here, not only does he correct the teaching by stating that we need to love our enemies, but he gives us a way to love them, to pray for them, to lift them up to God. Now, I don't always know how to pray for someone. So when I don't know how to pray for someone, and you, I don't want to pray for some kind of evil to befall on them, right? So oftentimes, I'll just pray for their best. And who knows? <coughs> Maybe God's best for them is a broken leg. I don't know. But I'll pray for God's best. How about you? 
Do you pray for those who hate you? Do you pray for those you deem as your enemy? How about in politics? The people on the other side of the aisle of you. Do you pray for them? The people that, you know, the, the, if their public policy went into place, you would just be so mad, you would shake your fist, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Do you stop and pray for them? Do you humanize them? Or do you dehumanize them? Next, he gives us the reason why we should pray and love them. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The so that here shows us that this is the way we can be identified with God. When we love those who hate us, when we love our enemies, we are actually identified with God in this way. And we might ask, who is God's enemy and how does he love them? And it's very clear, God's enemy is everyone who is in rebellion against God, which includes every single human. Every single one of us at some point in our life has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And, and we might even say, God, I want you to speak into one area of my life, and I want you to change this one area of my life, but I got a whole basket of sins over here that I don't want you to touch. I got a whole bunch of sins over here. Don't even look over in that direction. I want to keep a hold of these ones. That's still rebellion against God. And when we rebel against God, we are enemies of God. So every single one of us has been an enemy of God. And how does he love us? By coming to this earth and dying in our place. Because every single one of us has rebelled. Every single one of us has said, forget you, God. I'm going to do things my way. Every single one of us deserves separation from God. Eternal separation from God. But because he loves us with such a great love, he came to this earth. And he paid the price so that we could be reconciled back to him. That's how he loves his enemies. He pays the price so that there can be a relationship again. And that's what he's calling us to do. So when we love our enemies, we're actually showing the world that we are sons of God who love like he loves. He continues on, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And he's saying, hey, look, if you just love people who love you, that's easy. That's what the rest of the world does. Everybody does that. Everybody just loves who loves them. That's the easy way. But you're called to be different. You're called to look different than from the world. And remember, he's confronting the religious legalism of the day. If you just love other religious legalists, you look, the, you look like the rest of the world. You look like the rest of the pagans. If you want to be identified with God, love those who hate you. And check out this one part that, that he emphasizes. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So greeting someone was a sign of respect. And I think greeting someone even to this day is a sign of respect. 
It's a recognition of you are a person and you matter. But how many of us have seen someone that we deem as an enemy or someone that we think might hate us and we're like, oh, I better duck quick. You're at the grocery store, you see the person turn the corner and you're like, oh no, get me out of here. Or maybe you don't hide. Maybe you just turn up your nose and you walk past like, ha ha, you insignificant little person. And what are you doing in that moment? You are dehumanizing that person. You are dehumanizing that image bearer of God. The most used commandment in the New Testament is greet one another. Now, I'm an introvert. I think we've got a lot of other introverted people in this room. We don't like to greet people in the first place, right? <laughs> like, you see someone in the grocery store, and you might even be friends with them, and you're like, oh, do I even stop and talk? Let alone someone we think hates us. And yet, here is the command. Now, he's not saying stop and have a deep, heartfelt conversation. Just simply greet them. Show them that you see that they exist and that they are worthy of saying hello to. It's a simple and practical way to love your enemy. And then he closes out. And I think he closes out this entire section with this last verse. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is a concluding statement for verses 21 through 20 or through 48. The word perfect in the Greek is teleos and can be translated as mature or perfect. The idea is that God is fully mature, fully perfect in his moral character. So our call is to strive after what he has called us to. Throughout this entire section, Jesus is confronting a legalism that was based on the idea that I can have that I didn't have to strive for something better. I could draw the line, I could run up to it, I could dance on it, and my heart could be wickedly evil. I could deceive by twisting laws, I could seek revenge that's more brutal than the crime, I could even hate others in God's creation, others that bear his image because they're on the wrong side. So the idea, the ideas are all about being just good enough. Just giving all those small yeses instead of the big yes. And Jesus is saying God is perfect. All these twistings of the law, all this justifying of our sin doesn't cut it. You think you're righteous because you love those who love you. Awesome. Everyone can do that. But can you love those who hate you? Essentially, the Pharisees were, were all just giving the small yeses and thinking they were a big deal because they gave small, comfortable yeses. And Jesus here is asking for the big yes, to submit our entire lives to the one who created us. And when we do that, he equips us to live out the assignment he has called us to. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word.
we thank you that you have patience and grace with us even when we just give the small yeses. And we pray that you would work in our heart that we would give the big yes. That we'd no longer hold on to sin that we know is sin, that we know is in rebellion against you. But that we would simply lay it all out and say, God, I'm sick and tired of rebelling against you. I will submit my entire life to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.